This summer has challenged many folks' notions of normalcy and pushed us to our limits. In the midst of the global COVID pandemic, many took to the streets in the U.S. to protest police brutality against Blacks and the enduring structures of racism. I had the opportunity in July to discuss the relationship between race and religion in Black communities with Dr. Marla Frederick. I'm excited to share this conversation with you as we discuss everything from Mother Emanuel, the church in Charleston that was the site of a massacre in 2015, and the ongoing BLM protests to Frederick's childhood experiences with religion. As you listen, please be patient. COVID has moved all of my interviews online and connections aren't always the best in spite of supposedly really good internet. Some of the audio quality comes and goes as the internet fades in and out. So thanks for your patience. Joining me is Dr. Marla Frederick, who is the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Religion and Culture at Emory University in the Candler School of Theology. She is the author of two books, the first entitled Between Sundays, Black Women and Everyday Struggles of Faith, and more recently, Televised Redemption, Black Religious Media and Racial Empowerment. And thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So when we scheduled to talk today, I failed to realize that it's the fifth anniversary of the shooting at Charleston's Mother Emanuel Church. So I wanted to start out by acknowledging the anniversary, but also kind of discussing the significance of places of worship within Black communities as more than just sacred spaces. And in particular, I recently read an article that came out today talking about how Mother Emanuel has had to adapt to kind of becoming a place of pilgrimage for folks. And um, so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts as a scholar of religion as to why you think Mother Emanuel has become a place of pilgrimage. Sure. Um, To your first question about the church as being even more than a sacred space, it always begs the question, you know, this divide between sacred and profane, what is it? Do we Mm -hmm. really believe it? Because, you know, the way the Black church emerged, it emerged as a space that was not only for worship, but a space that helped to care for the very needs of the community. Because there were no government structures that were interested in helping Black people, much of Black racial uplift came out of the church, whether that's the establishment of mutual aid societies, um, whether it's helping to establish schools so that children could learn, or burial societies, all of these social needs emerged from the church often. And so the church became what some scholars have called a nation within a nation of the black church. Um, And so Mother Emanuel is um, this church with such rich history in Charleston. It's it's a church um, that saw... um, great revolution, a sense of great black, a a sense of great race pride, um, sparked rebellion. And as a result, it became this target for this white supremacist um, five years ago. And the church today as a pilgrimage, I think people want to go there because they want to mourn with the congregation. And I think it's just the actual disbelief sometimes that this could have actually happened in a sacred space like a church. Um, they want to worship with the community. They want to communicate love and care for the community. 
Um, but at the same time, I visited there a few years back, and I'm from South Carolina. Okay. And one of my friends from high school um, actually attends that church. And so we were talking about what it looks like after all of that to try to put the community back together. And it's been very difficult because, um, one, you have all these people coming from all around the world to worship, which is, which is a beautiful thing because people want to worship, they want to commemorate, um, but at the same time, church is a community. Mm-hmm. How do you continue to create intimate community when you're always being gazed upon? Yes. You know, I sat in the congregation and there's a, there's a balcony above and then there, you know, half of the church, I would say, from the mid, midsection back, and people are mixed in, but they ask for visitors to stand more than half of the church when I visited were visitors. And so in that context, I think it can be very difficult for a church to really um, um, commune together. Um, and I know that it has been difficult just from my conversations um, with my friend. Um, and I had an opportunity to meet Clementa Pinkney's widow um a few years back she spoke at a conference um that i was a part of and i think it can be hard for families to go back to the site where so many where, yes. where their loved ones died mm-hmm. um i think that can be very difficult and so um that church has borne a heavy burden and i think that church community has borne a, a heavy burden from from that huge um tragedy yeah i i think it's interesting that um you point out that you you think there are those who are just so overwhelmed by the disbelief that this would happen in a sacred space and i i smiled when you said that simply because i i wonder then you know there's always the comments about people's memories are short or people's memory of history is short and I think, to me, that doesn't surprise me, especially because of the number of attacks that have happened on black churches throughout U.S. history, but also just places of worship for, um, you know, non-white congregations. And I, I shouldn't necessarily say congregations, but because um, I'm not thinking just of Christians, but of Muslims and Jews and, and, and things like that, of sacred spaces are usually pretty much targets, I would say. Yeah. I can imagine them as um, um, spaces that are set apart and void of evil, right? And then evil enters into the church. Um, and at Mother Emmanuel, when you're inside the church, you are able, at the end of service, if you like, to go downstairs into the fellowship hall where um, the massacre occurred. And that is just hard. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and the way the church is set up, you're able to read the history on the walls. You, you can read very rich history of that church. And as you descend the stairs, you enter into this fellowship hall where you know nine people um, were murdered. Um, it's, 
it is it was an unspeakable evil i mean it's just unreal um that it could happen to people who were praying and welcoming someone into their space yeah and extending um themselves to someone who could then murder all of them mm -hmm. uh, What about, you know, because you had mentioned the nation within a nation about kind of like the black church community. Um, but I'm also curious about, um, you know, your own experience as you've written about it, kind of going to church and and how you wrote about listening to the older women kind of discuss faith in God. And I, I was wondering if you saw, if you experienced any of this nation within a nation or this connection between kind of faith and activism in your childhood. Oh, absolutely. Um, my church, I grew up uh, Progressive Baptist in South Carolina. And so the Progressive Baptist Church um, was a, de a denomination that was established by Martin Luther King and his father um, and several other ministers after the National Baptist Convention, which was the largest Baptist, Black Baptist convention in the country at the time. Um, their president... Uh, Joseph Jackson uh, refused to support the civil rights movement. And there's a long story about the meeting at that convention. There was an altercation. One of the ministers fell and died. I mean, it was, it was, it was a big, big issue. Um, it was about whether or not J Jackson could remain as president and him wanting to extend his tenure. That was the issue, but he would have extended the tenure and extended the kind of non-support of the civil rights movement and because he was of the school of gradualism he thought that over time um people's hearts and minds changed more um they became you know true christians and 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 also just this question about integration what effect would integration have on um, black communities black businesses black schools um, so it wasn't a foregone conclusion that everybody would support the civil rights movement. And so um, because King and his father and several other ministers who were instrumental in the civil rights movement um, could not garner the support of the National Baptist Convention, they decided to establish a separate convention, the Progressive Baptist Convention, and they established that in Ohio. And that denomination thus was established in the 1960s. And so the churches that were under the Progressive Baptist Commission were very kind of clear about their the need for kind of social activist, social engagement work. And so growing up in my church in South Carolina, my, um, my pastor, then um, Reverend W.S. Randolph, um, eventually, you know, ran for uh, city council, was mayor pro tem of the city. Um, we, when um, Jesse Jackson ran for president, I remember going to rallies for Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign. I mean, there was just always a sense that faith required you to be civically engaged yes. on many levels. And it was not um, uncommon for us to have people talking about 
the need for um, voter registration, um, get out the vote campaigns. Mm -hmm. And not that they were synchronous with what happened inside the church, but you know, church opens on Sunday, but it also opens throughout the rest of the week. And so there are many different occasions for activities. And there's just a lot of collaboration. When I grew up, um, with Baptist churches across the city. So it wasn't just my church, but there were several other churches that were equally active and would hold various events that were supported by other other churches. Yeah. Kind of continuing off of that line of thinking, you know, when you wrote um, in Between Sundays, I think the, the quote that religion serves as both social relief and social protest I, I really like that phrase, and I could just kind of want you to uh, exp- expound upon that and explain what you meant when you wrote that. That's really funny. I'm like, what did I mean when I wrote that? No. <laughs> <laughs> this this um, is your book based off your dissertation, right? Right. So, yeah, that, and no, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, but I think um, religion offers not only um, an opportunity, so this is the framework that's given, given for African-American religion um, is a framework that has roots in C. Eric Lincoln and Lawrence Mamiya's text, The Black Church and the African-American Experience. Um, they kind of solidify this debate in their, its argumentation by saying whether, you know, Black religion is um, demonstrative of protest or accommodation. Okay. And so there's this pendulum swing, like sh- if you're a black church, you're engaged in protest or you're engaged in accommodating the system. And various sociologists and scholars the years before and since then have had this kind, some variation of this debate. And what I wanted to get at in that quote is that it is both and, mm-hmm. that it is a tradition that certainly often encourages protest and engagement, but it's also a tradition that sees the church as a hospital mm-hmm. and a, a place of care for individuals. And so one is ever always protesting. If the church is not doing the care work that the church is called to do, then it's not being the church either. Okay. That's interesting. I, I don't know and I, I kind of, I find that very interesting. I've been thinking a lot about kind of um, progressive religious activism lately for, for my own dissertation. Um, but thinking about, you know, how that is kind of at the, the heart, you would, you could say, um, kind of emerging in these communities. But, you know, I think about like the history of um, white Christianity and its different diversions and, and break-offs from each other. And, you know, I guess you could say that to a certain extent, maybe white mainline congregations echo that, especially when you think back to kind of the, the progressive era and the social gospel and things like that. But I don't know, especially when I grew up, it was never both and, I felt like. And, you know, I didn't stay going mm-hmm. to church for very long, but, you know, it was never a both and conversation um, in mm-hmm. the congregations that my family belong to. So I find that very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always, it's often attention, you know, there's, it's, it's often attention in many churches, you know, about 
to what extent do you engage socially and to what extent do you, are you caring for your community? And that tension, I think it's healthy. Mm -hmm. It's a tension, you know, so many talk about the numbers of young people who've left the church for various reasons. Um, and one of them um, that's going to propose they want the church to be more socially engaged. Mm -hmm. um, and so to some extent, to the, to the extent that churches don't allow those young voices, not that it's only young voices that are engaged in and interested in social protests and social engagement, um, but to the extent that churches don't allow those voices to be heard and, and smother those voices, I think it's to the extent that the churches die off because you're not creating this and allowing for this kind of dynamic tension to exist so that you're doing this kind of prophetic work of, of looking after your neighbor, the, the community around you, as well as this priestly work of caring for those within the context of your, your own body. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you kind of brought up the, the movement away from the institutionalized church or the disaffiliation movement, because my next question actually ties into that. <laughs> um, but I, so I'm thinking about um, kind of, you know, the concept of the black church as it relates to the current wave of black civil rights protests that, you know, I would say began in Ferguson, which is also where Black Lives Matter kind of emerges from. And I'm interested to kind of, you know, I, I hear about, mainly because I'm, in, I'm immersed in the world of religion scholars and religious practitioners who talk about these movements and talk about what efforts they're doing. But I don't think it's as part of the, the overall conversation, the religious aspect of it, as it was in the 1960s. And so do you think that the, the black church is kind of losing its hold on the prophetic side or the activism side because of disaffiliation? Or do you think it's still there, just not as prominent? I certainly think it's still there and not as prominent in one particular sense. Um, the movement today is much more diffuse and decentralized, right? Mm -hmm. There's not a, and, 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 and this is one of the critiques of the civil rights movement, right? It was top heavy. It had these male figureheads mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. you know, for the race. And, you know, if they didn't show up, there couldn't be a march, you know? And so today's marches, today's civil rights protests are hugely decentralized with many different voices and people speaking and many people organizing. And that is attributed in many ways, some people would argue, because at least the movement for Black Lives um, is founded by women and who have um, in some ways intentionally created a more decentralized kind of organization. And so to that extent, I think that there are many people, this is why I call the book Between Sundays, I don't know that you can look at a church and say, this, this church is active or this church is inactive <laughs> or this church is active, this church is inactive because the church is the body of, of the people, yes. right? And so what people do from Monday through Saturday is their witness in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think there are tons of people who go to church every Sunday who are also marching in the streets. And so, but it doesn't have the same kind of talk heavy leadership that we are most familiar with 
from the 60s. I think I that's I, I definitely agree with that. And I think what's also interesting, too, is, you know, perhaps beyond the fact that Black Lives Matter was founded by women and so the kind of dispersed and not the male hierarchy, you know, uh, being portrayed in the organization and the movement, but also, you know, part of the disaffiliation movement is this no longer wanting that kind of top heavy hierarchy, no longer Absolutely. wanting that. And so I think that's very, there's something there to kind of explore of how disaffiliation and the, the new style of civil rights activism is kind of still related. So it's still faith and activism tied. They're just different because of how faith currently looks versus how it looked back in the 1960s. Wow. Absolutely. You got me thinking. Yeah. <laughs> hey, religion nerds. It's Ashley. I'm just interrupting real quick because I want to hear from you. I want to hear how religion is playing a part in your 2020 election. Has something come up in your neighborhood? Have you seen a sign somewhere? Or if you're a religious practitioner, has religion in the election come up at services or at your place of worship? Let me know how religion is playing a part in your 2020 election by either emailing me at religionishpodcast at gmail.com or by leaving a short message at 720-442-8623. I look forward to hearing from you. Another kind of personal question is I'm very curious as to kind of what's at the forefront of your mind when you kind of hear about the current ongoing um, protests with regards to religion? Um, There's so much. Um, We talked about how the leadership structure has changed Mm -hmm. and, you know, the church as we know it, you know, the leadership of the church, mm-hmm. it's not at the center of um, the movement. People are, are involved in the movement for sure. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, and I think that people are finding their voice and purpose and that the, the civil rights era provided a, a kind of lens and pathway forward. It's not the same. I know people have um, critiques about whether or not this is, um, you know, these not quote unquote nonviolent protests and whatnot. Um, But at the same time, I think that the the way religion, the the protest and COVID-19 happening at the same time have put many communities in a kind of precarious place. Mm-hmm. I think um, churches, all religious communities, mosques, synagogues, everybody's trying to figure this thing out, figure out how to be supportive and how to care for their commu- their flock. Mm-hmm. So I've talked to, you know, pastors who have gone online, one who's been online, um, actually developing quite a bit of content for his congregation. I mean, they have a a workout program in the morning. They have, uh, you know, 
teenagers talk in the afternoon. They have couples dialogue in the evening. There are all these kinds of programming for them. Um, at the same time that churches are trying to feed and care for people mm-hmm. who have lost their jobs and don't know where their next paycheck is going to come from and trying to help them pay their bills. And so at the same time that you have mass protest, you have tremendous on the ground need yes. for, for people. And I've, I've seen churches where you could see cars. I saw one church um, in outside of Chicago, Faith Movers, they had hundreds of cars lined up because they were doing a food, a box giveaway. They'd organized this giveaway for the community. And so there's so much going on right now um, between the marches and COVID-19 and the recession that we're in. Um, There's a great need for the church at the same time. Um, you know, many atheists who are like, religion is bad and horrible. They look and they see, you know, people not wearing masks and yeah. going to church anyway and disregarding science. And they say, see, this is why religion is, is bad. And so, you know, it's, it's both and. Yes. Religion is doing a lot these <laughs> days. Um, it's, it's helping many people. Um, in, in some cases, we can you know, really see that harm is being brought. Um, One pastor and his wife died of COVID-19 because they insisted on having a church service and many people got ill. He and his wife passed and I saw a plea from his daughter um, for people to stop going into churches and closed spaces and wear masks because, you know, she just never imagine that her whole life yeah. would be ended by the death of her, both of her parents in short order um, due to COVID-19. So, you know, we, we see religion as we have historically operating on many different planes, some of it for the good of people and sometimes um, to their detriment. Yep. So what are you currently getting into? Well, you know, I have a, um, a, well, there's this project I'm working on on Black institutions. Um, and so um, I have many different projects coming out of that. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a book project, but many other kinds of tentacles to help think about the viability of Black institutions in a quote unquote post racial, we'll see what that means, means yeah. world, right? Um, <clears throat> But the challenges that Black institutions have faced, um, whether we're talking about um, HBCUs that have seen, um, or, or at one point, seeing a decline in um, student enrollment because students were going more to majority PWI mm-hmm. uh, institutions. Okay, so we just heard Dr. Frederick talk about HBCUs and PWIs. Let's break down those acronyms. HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities, while PWI stands for Primarily White Institutions. You may have heard of HBCUs before, but you may not know their history. HBCUs, legally defined by the Higher Education Act of 1965, are schools that were founded prior to 1964 and, quote, whose principal mission was and is the education of Black Americans, end quote. 
The first HBCUs opened up in Pennsylvania and Ohio prior to the Civil War. And the majority of the HBCUs were opened around 1867 following the Emancipation Proclamation. These schools included Alabama State University, Howard University, Morehouse College, Morgan State University, and so many more. Religious organizations actually played a role in initially funding these colleges and universities, and HBCUs continue to play an important role in celebrating and fostering Black scholarship while providing locations for Black youth to explore the various forms of Black culture. On the show notes, I'm going to post a lot of different links so you can read more in depth about the history of HBCUs. It's really fascinating. I highly recommend you doing it. And I'm also going to share a link to a clip from Blackish um, where Junior is considering attending Howard University. But also, um, but there's been a return of students going to uh, HBCUs, a kind of renaissance of interest in HBCUs and not all saw a decline, but it, you know, this arc where, yes. where it's leading us. And then for black churches, um, some estimates that nearly 40% of um, black people who worship regularly are attending interracial and or predominantly white churches that are led by white pastors. Interesting. So thinking about what does that mean for the institution that we call the Black church? And will there be a kind of return to the Black church as many young people who are in these interracial and predominantly white churches are disillusioned with those churches' approach to questions of race and <clears throat> civil rights mm-hmm. and elections? So... There, there are many parts of that project. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's a, a project that um, is, is fresh and new that I've been talking about. We've been doing more talking than we have um, actual writing about it now, um, just because it is so new. But it's looking at uh, Black evangelicals. Ooh, yay. And just really wanting to tease apart that... Um, history and come to understand it. Yes. It's a complex history. Uh, it's, it's not a history simply of Black people um, entering into white spaces, um, these big white character organizations or Black denominations um, in, in white, Black churches in larger white denominations, like the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a history of contestation mm-hmm. within spaces and I think that that history too is rich. Yeah. No, I'm both those projects sound really interesting. So I await their results. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a book that you've read lately that's kind of like really spoken to you or just gotten you really energized? And it doesn't have to be about religion. It can be about anything. Um, you know, I feel like I'm playing catch up because Ibrahim Kendi is on every television station right. when I turn change the channel. So I'm reading How to Be an Anti-Racist. So I read Stamp from the beginning before, but I was like, I need to see how we put this together, you know, <laughs> pragmatically. Um, so that's, I think, one of the texts that I've been mm-hmm. going through of late. 
it's it's on my reading list. It's there. Yeah, and everything else is, you know, it's related to my my research. I'm reading a, a book now on the history of HBCUs. It's yes. really fascinating. I mean, so well done. Um, but you know, these historians they turn up the 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 most interesting nuggets, like the fact that the University of South Carolina at one point was majority black. And you think really interesting? Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> so there was a moment where they admitted, they allowed the admission of um, black students. This was, I think, during Reconstruction or sometime in the late 1800s. But once the black students came, the white students left. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then the, they changed the board and kicked out all the black students and brought the white students back. So, you know, it just. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting how that works, right? Well, thank you so much for sharing, and thanks for coming and talking with me. Um, is is there anywhere where people can find you online besides your scholarly profile on Emory's website? Of course. <laughs> um, I keep saying that I'm going to work on my Twitter profile, so I do have a Twitter um, profile. You can look for me at Marla Frederick. Okay. Um, and at Marla Frederick, so... There you have it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) All right. You're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. For this episode's religion nerd moment, I'm going to talk about what I did a lecture on um, for a class I'm TAing um, called Gender and Communication. So this Monday, I got to lecture on masculinist movements in Christianity and muscular Christianity. And it was really interesting to kind of get all of the students' um, thoughts and perspectives on this topic, Uh, especially since we were dealing a lot with um, the YMCA, uh, how it relates to muscular Christianity relates to football, and also the like reboot kind of in a way or rebranding, I guess you could also say of promise keepers that happened this year um, with their virtual meeting. Um, it was also particularly interesting because the very first promise keepers gathering happened at the university of Colorado in um, the Folsom football field. So it was a kind of um, tangible connection that these students could have had uh, to um, the material we were talking about. So, I may post actually my slideshow um, for that uh, lecture in the show notes um, so you can kind of get a little bit of an idea of what we talked about. But I just, uh, it was the first time I've really gotten to kind of like nerd out over religion um, that isn't about my dissertation. So it was kind of exciting for me. Um, and I always love uh, being in the classroom and kind of teaching um, the place of religion and society, even in ways that we don't see which also, lo and behold, is the whole point of religion-ish. So, uh, yeah, check out the show notes um, for my slideshow and some links to videos that are really interesting. Thanks for listening to Religion-ish, your nerdy podcast about how religion impacts society. If you enjoyed this show, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Religion-ish. This podcast is a solo project of love by me, Ashley Campbell. So your reviews really do help the show reach more people. You can find this episode's show notes at religionish.com. And you can reach out to Religionish on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search 
Religionish Podcast. You can also reach us by email at religionishpodcast at gmail.com. The show music was performed by Joe Nicola and Dan Paul Hammer. Have a great weekend, religion nerds. <laughs>